So we've already talked about our text, where we're going with this, Matthew 25. Love for you to join me there. Near the end of the Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament. Uh, in fact, after this chapter, you go right into, in fact, this is the last week of his life, but you go right into the events immediately preceding the death of Jesus on that Friday. And so we're right at the end of his earthly life when we're looking at Matthew 25. When you think about Judgment Day, what comes to your mind? I mean, I'm, obviously this isn't a forum where you can really express that right now, but I'd like for you to think about it. What, what do you think of when you think of Judgment Day? That, that image that comes to your mind probably is created by a lot of different things. Your upbringing, your first, maybe if you don't even remember it, but your first memories or recollections of sermons or home devotionals or Bible readings or movies or television shows where you saw the Judgment Day pictured or heard it portrayed. This is one of the texts. There aren't that many, really. There's another one in Revelation 20 that is part of that you know, apocalyptic kind of language of the book of Revelation where, where John sees all sorts of amazing things. But every time, I think, I think I'm right in saying this, every time that the Bible talks about the, where God is, uh, whether the second coming, judgment day, whenever it talks about that, it almost always seems like the author, narrator, is grasping at straws to try to describe it in human words, using human words. It always uses words like glorious and holy, and a lot of times there's light there. Revelation 20, right near the end of the New Testament, you've got this image set forth by John there, Revelation 20. Let me read you just a little bit of this. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, heaven and earth, or earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And he goes on and he talks about some incredible things that happened on that day. I think that's the image of judgment day. I think of Isaiah 6. Remember that text, Isaiah 6? Uh, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and Holy sitting on the throne is this beautiful image there in Isaiah 6. And Isaiah falls down and he didn't know what to do. Woe is me, he says, because he doesn't know what to do in the presence of God. So at judgment is when heaven and earth meet. This is when, this is when Jesus descends. This is when we have this great assembly in the presence of God on his, on his throne. Now, imagine that you're there. You're there. What does he care about? What does God care about? What does Jesus care about? What's he looking at in your life? What's he most concerned about? What's on his list that he's checking, if he has a list? What does he care about? Isn't that interesting to reflect on? Your answer to that probably, again, is shaped by the way you were raised. The, the, the church in which you were reared. The teaching that you've heard, your emphasis in your Bible study and reading, what, what God is concerned about. And I, and I think there are a couple, it's like everything, I guess. There are, the pendulum swings, you know, and you've got, you've got extremes on every issue. And, and maybe, maybe the extremes on this issue would be God is concerned 
with either this or that. And the, and the, and the thing on, on this end would be like this idea of everything that we do in practice, we, we might call this doctrine and we might call it your theology, what you believe about God, Jesus, the church, salvation, and so on. What you believe, it's, it's, it's more of a, a list of doctrinal tenets. You know, this is, this is what you would put on your website if you say, this is what we believe. And most churches have that, whether written or unwritten. We've we got this, thing, this list of things we believe about God, Holy Spirit, Jesus, baptism, salvation, worship, so on. So, you, you might think, well, the thing God is most interested about when, when I get there at Judgment Day and I fall before His throne, God is going to look at me and He's going to be very concerned about that. What did you believe about God, Jesus, the Spirit, baptism, salvation, worship, and so on? He's going to be very concerned about that. That, that reminds me, I saw this um, friend, a friend uh, is looking for a preaching job. And he sent a copy of the list of questions he was asked in writing. I thought it was interesting, and I looked through it. It had, I don't know, 50-something questions, I think. And every single one of them was about a doctrinal position. Uh, every single one of them was, what do you believe about this, 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 50-something of them. Which is nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. I just think it's missing something. I think it's incomplete. I, th I, think, it, I think it kind of portrays a, a little bit of a, a misplaced emphasis when you consider what the Bible teaches about a lot of things, specifically what it teaches here. So you've got, you've got a pendulum kind of, kind of swinging on, on, on this extreme over here. It's all about what we might call a creed or what, a list of what you believe. And then you've got maybe on the other extreme which is where you might get, if this is the only story that you had, the one that we've already read, Matthew 25. And, and that would be this, over here on this other thing, is where some, some people are, some, some religious groups are, in, and this is getting fairly common now in our present cultural and religious climate, where the only thing that matters is, are you concerned and involved in what's often called social justice? Are these kinds of issues? How do you treat the poor? Is your church involved in the local community with, with uh, work among the homeless and the poor, the divorced, uh, whatever, you know, whatever, um, whatever segment of society we're talking about, the, the marginalized for whatever reason? So you, you've, got, you've got an extreme, I think, that, that isolates, says, well, it doesn't really matter what your church believes, practices about Jesus, Holy Spirit, salvation, and so on. It doesn't matter so much about that as long as you're doing this. And I think this is, is true of, of this issue as, as well as others. It's not an either-or proposition. Now, having said all that, I want to emphasize something to us this morning with us. And that is, we need to, we need to hear the message of the story. And if you have been raised in, and if you are in a position where you're more concerned, mostly, I might even say mostly concerned, or maybe even... It's possible that you might be exclusively concerned, as far as salvation is concerned, about what you believe and teach and practice in this so-called doctrinal area, then I think you need to hear the message of the story. Because Jesus is saying something powerful here, and I don't want to water that down. I don't want to, I don't want to try to make it more palatable 
to those of us who might be more concerned about doctrine than we are about compassion. Jesus has a message for us, and I think we need to hear it. Let's look at the text, all right? Let's look at the text. And, and there are these phrases that come through, when the Son of Man comes. I just want to talk about them just for a second. When the Son of Man comes, there's a lot of emphasis about this, as I mentioned to you two weeks ago, a lot of emphasis on the second coming of Jesus. And I would urge you to read the New Testament in view of all the statements it has about the coming of Christ. It's all over the place. And it's there more than you think, I guarantee you, if you start looking for it. Uh, New Testament writers were very concerned about the end, and they talk about it all the time. And so when near the end of Jesus' life on earth, prior to the cross, prior to the resurrection, during this moment of time, Jesus is looking ahead. And he says, when the Son of Man comes. And he's urging us to live our lives in view of the fact that the world as we know it, as it is now, is not going to last. It's not going to be like this. There's coming an end to this. It's we're in the already but not yet. We are already experiencing some of the Lord's blessings, but we haven't yet experienced all of them fully. But we will one of these days. So we, we're living in this in-between time. The world as it is will not last. Jesus is coming. So one of the, one of the I guess one of the side notes here might be we get stressed out and distracted and overwhelmed by so many different things, and many of those things aren't that big of a deal in view of eternity. When the Son of Man comes, it is assumed in the New Testament, always assumed, that He is going to leave, in, in the life of Jesus especially, He's going to leave, but it's assumed in the New Testament that He's coming back. So the world as we know it will not exist forever. When the Son of Man come, comes in His glory, it's a pretty awesome thing to think about. And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. You notice that Jesus is saying, using this language here to describe this beautiful image, in his glory, all his angels, he will sit on his glorious throne. What comes to your mind? Can you, can you envision that? I think of Isaiah 6, this high and lifted up, lots of lights, lots of angels, lots of, I don't know, smoke. Uh, it's it's going to be something else when he comes. Not going to come privately. It's not going to be some sort of secret thing where some people hear it and some don't. This is going to be a big deal when he comes. So when he comes and all of his angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. A lot of, a lot of talk about what that all the nations means, that phrase means. I think it's, it seems to me pretty clear that what he's talking about here is not to be used in some sort of exclusive sense to refer to the church or to refer to uh, just, just maybe uh, Gentiles as opposed to to the Jewish people, I think he, this is the way he usually uses this expression. All the nations, is talking about everybody. And so that's probably the way you read it anyway. He's talking about everybody. When all the nations, this, this phrase, sometimes, just, sometimes it's used to talk about all people groups. And I think that's probably what it's talking about here. Regardless of your race, ethnicity, regardless of gender, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of where you're raised, whatever, everybody's going to be there. Nobody is excluded from this. You're not going to have one group over here that, that goes around the, the judgment day somehow. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. He seems to be saying that when he comes, before him will be gathered all the nations. Everybody will be there. And you see that a lot of times when the Bible talks about judgment scenes, it, it emphasizes that. The one I read to you a minute ago in Revelation 20, I saw the dead, small and great. In 2 Timothy 4, 
Paul says the living in the dead will be present at judgment. So you got, you got all these expressions, the living in the dead, the small and the great, all the nations. I think the collective picture is everybody's going to be there at judgment day. I can't even imagine what that's going to look like. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is the, kind of the, the parable part of the story. The sheep from the goats. And as you read on, the sheep are accepted and the goats are rejected. And I want you to know, God didn't have anything against goats. Uh, this, it's interesting that he chooses. And, and I read some stuff this week about you know, the way they did shepherding in the first century. And people have tried to uh, kind of tease out some aspect of being a goat that, that makes it a negative thing. <clears throat> Best I can tell, Jesus just arbitrarily chooses this image that would have been familiar to the people then. Uh, they, they often would have the sheep and the goats together. And then there would be times where they would be separated. Probably he's just drawing on that image. And uh, being a sheep or a goat, in biblical times, Jesus isn't giving us compliments when he calls us sheep. You know, they're not typically portrayed as being the smartest creatures around. So here's the idea. He's talking about the separation. That's his point. He's talking about the separation. It's going to be like you've got a bunch of sheep and goats together. And the shepherd comes to the end of the day. And he separates them. So, so they'd be familiar with that kind of image, and that's the point of it here. The sheep are going to go to the right, the goats to the left. But his point being, what follows after that? And I want you to look at this with me for a minute, because herein lies the point of this passage. Okay? So we read it earlier, but I want to focus in on it. He says, he says to those on the right, Notice the contrast, okay, between what he says here and what he says down below to those on the left. Come, you who are blessed. I am in verse 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And this is an amazing thing here, especially in view of the fact that they didn't even know this. Their response is one of surprise. When did we see you hungry, thirsty, naked, in prison? And so when did we see? We don't, we don't remember that. This is what it's going to be like at judgment. These people don't even know when they did this. And Jesus says these famous words. As you did it, this is verse 40, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. I was this, and you did this. And they're surprised, and he says, you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Okay, so that's the progression. And then he turns to those on his left. And it is the opposite. The wording is almost identical, except for it's negated. Or it's, in, it's, it's the opposite. And so he says to those, you know, come you blessed of my Father. And then to those on his left, he says, depart from me. Words that will be the most horrible words that anybody ever hears. There's nothing worse than this. 
some of us will hear them. It's a scary thing. Depart from me. Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me. Come, you blessed, he says. Depart from me, you cursed. There's nothing worse than standing at the foot or falling at the feet of the one who created you and hearing, depart from me. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice the contrast. And then he goes on. And the wording is almost identical to what it was earlier. Except it's negated. I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you did not give me anything to drink. And so on throughout this. The response is the same. Did you notice that? They were, they were what? Su surprised. When did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or whatever. And Jesus says... Inasmuch as you didn't do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And a horrible, horrible thing at the end of this. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus is teaching something that we need to hear, that you and I need to hear. Because, well, let me, let me back up before I say that. Let me say this. You know, isn't it interesting that they were surprised? And so it's very important, that, that surprise aspect, to recognize this. Because this, honestly, this is a, this is a story some people struggle with. And, and some people struggle with it because it seems to be indicating that you're saved by works, right? That, and so if you have a, have a kind of a position on, on, on the teaching of Jesus that you're saved by something other than works, saved by faith only or grace only or whatever... And this is a story that kind of make, will make you struggle a little bit. Because he seems to be connecting this to what you do. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's as big of a problem as some people make it out to be when you read this story. Because the Bible doesn't know of faith that's unaccompanied by obedience. You know, it doesn't know of that. It doesn't know of somebody saved by grace who then says, I'm not going to do anything. The, the Bible speaks harshly of that kind of mentality. So... So we ought not be scared off by his emphasis on works. But I do want you to notice this, this surprise aspect. I think it does teach this. They were not caring for the least of these so that they would be saved. Okay? They weren't thinking in their minds, wait a second, wait a second. I need to make sure I care for the poor because I want to be, law I want to be saved. That wasn't in their thinking. Which leads me to this conclusion. I think this is the main point of this. All right? I want to walk away from this with what I think is the main point of this story. And I think it's this. When you follow Jesus, when you have been saved by Jesus, when you've been saved by His grace, mercy, and love, and you have been saved because you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you want to follow Him with all of your heart, then instinctively you're going to do this. You don't do this so that you will get saved. You do this instinctively because you are saved. They were surprised by this. When did we see you? It's not like this is some sort of premeditated thing. I want to get saved, and so if I'm going to get saved, I know I've got to be concerned about the poor. He's saying this is an evidence of salvation, that this is something you do instinctively. I'm, I want to... I'm going to I'm going to beat that horse a little bit because I want you to get this idea. 
it might leave you with this idea, well, how do I, how do I, how do I get this? You know, how do I get this instinct? I think you get this instinct by following Jesus. You follow Jesus, you start to think more like Jesus. You start to look more like Jesus. You start to talk more like Jesus. You start to care about what Jesus cares about. You start to hate what Jesus hates. You start to love what Jesus loves. You start to look a whole lot more like the one you adore. So how do you develop an instinct? You know, how, how, do, you, how do you get an instinct? That's kind of hard. You get an instinct like this by falling in love with Jesus, by spending time with Jesus, by learning to love him, and walking with him. This is not like some magic pill. You get baptized and you come out and your heart for the poor is just you know, miraculously implanted in you and it'll be there for the rest of your life. This is something that you develop, that God develops in you, that the Spirit does in you as you spend time with Jesus. But this is an instinct. It's not a motivation or it's not something you do in order to get something. You know, I give you this, you give me that. It's not this. That's not what it is. So I don't want you to take this story and go out and say, well, I got to... I guess I'll go work at a homeless shelter this week. Got to do it. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to be a goat, right? I don't want to be a goat, so I'm going to go to a homeless shelter this week. Or I'm going to do this. It's, it's not that. It's, it's follow Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Read his word. Talk to him. Love him. Grow in your relationship with him. And what you'll find, I think, is... He will start working on your heart. And over time, your heart will start to look more like His heart. Instinct. They were surprised. It's an important part of the story. It's the fact that they were surprised by the way He challenged them here. What does this look like? This is it's kind of where we talk about what it looks like for us. And I appreciate the men who've led in our worship this morning and incorporated this thinking into the, into the songs and into the prayers and to the communion meditation and so on. What does this look like? Man, it looks different, doesn't it? It looks different. It'll look different in your life than it does in mine. It can look like a whole lot of different things. It all centers around the least of these. The least of these, my brothers, he says. And this expression, by the way, I think you ought to know this. This expression usually in the Gospel of Matthew and usually when it's used by Jesus is an expression that refers to Christians. I don't think you have to take it here exclusively of Christians, but I do think there's a priority here to Christians. And I, and I think that because of the way this expression is used and also because of uh, phrases like what you've got in Galatians 6, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all people. Remember this one? Especially those of the household of faith. And so there's an emphasis in this phrase, I believe, where Jesus is saying You're, you need to care for people who are marginalized, you need, to, you need to care for people who are in need, especially people who are believers. And so your heart needs to be broken when you see a believer who has needs. Isn't this all over the gospel of 1 John? Steve was talking about 1 John in the uh, communion thoughts a few minutes ago. This idea of you see your brother have need, what do you do? You help. Hungry, thirsty, naked, in prison, sick, 
or whatever. If you see a brother or sister have need, your heart, because you're a follower of Jesus, is going to be broken for this brother or sister. I don't think we ought to leave it only there, whereas this doesn't apply to people outside of the household of faith. I don't think that's the way the Lord intended it here. But it, is, it applies especially there. And then we take that principle and we, ex, we expand it. And this applies to anybody who's in need. So, who has been marginalized in your world? Who is poor? Who is hungry? Who is thirsty? Who is on the outskirts of society for whatever reason? Who is hard to love? Who is hard to minister to? I think we ought to ask those questions. Jesus is not talking about what's easy here. He's talking about our hearts that become a lot like His heart. And how did Jesus spend his time? What ultimately got him crucified wasn't, well, it had something to do with who he claimed to be. But I don't even think that was the main thing. I think the main thing was he spent time around the untouchables. He spent time around people who are of the wrong background, who had messed up sexually. He spent time around people who were of the wrong, that's in air quotes, ethnicity. According to his world, he spent time around people out there on the margins instead of the religious insiders, and they killed him for it. That's what Luke 15 is about. When, uh, when the three stories about the woman who lost a coin, you know, a, a shepherd who lost a sheep, a man who lost a son, and you've got the story there that was told because Jesus wanted them to understand that God is concerned about the people who are on the margins. That's what he's concerned about. He's concerned about everybody, but he has a... What was the expression um, I heard several years ago? God's preferential option for the poor. God's preferential care for the poor. God is concerned about the marginalized. That comes through in the story. So back to where we started. What does God care about? What does he care about? Well, at Judgment Day, what's, what does he care about? Does he care about doctrine? Or does he care about compassion? Is God mostly concerned, exclusively concerned about the top 50 things that you believe about Jesus, Spirit, Father, worship, salvation, church organization, whatever, this list? Is He exclusively concerned about Or does He care about compassion? Now, can't answer that by saying, well, He's concerned about this or that. It's not an either or thing. God does care about what we believe. He does care about that. And it bothers me when I hear of churches or, or people who are following Jesus or wanting to follow Jesus and they're saying, let's just throw all that out. That, that, that's a part of the church I was brought up in and it just doesn't matter at all. You know, this fundamentalist kind of, kind of thing over here. I just want to get rid of that. It's all about love, all how you treat people. It's all, that's all he cares about. That bothers me because you've got a lot in the Bible about what you believe, about who Jesus is, what he's done, who, his nature and so on. You don't throw all that out. But also, let me challenge us to recognize you're not saved because you get the list right. You can have the list right. You can answer every 50, every one of those 50 questions exactly right. Yes, no, fill in the blank, whatever. You can get them all right. But if your heart doesn't start to look like Jesus's, then something is wrong. And so the story here is this. When you follow Jesus, you will instinctively start to care about people on the margins because that's who He especially 
paid attention to, and cared for. Not either or. You don't throw out either one of these. But depending on the way you're bent, you may need to spend a little bit more time in passage like this one. I may need to spend a little bit more time there. Because, especially for some of us with our backgrounds, it's all about what you believe. And not as much. At least there wasn't this great overwhelming emphasis on having the heart that was like his heart. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not a Christian, we want you to identify with Jesus. We want you to be a, a Jesus follower. We want you to. And that's a beautiful thing. We, you know, we want to get out of his way and we want you to see Jesus. We want you to come to Jesus. We want you to be in love with him. We want you to see who he is and his, you know, Jesus, Jesus is just, he's, he's a wonderful and attractive and uh, magnetic being. And, and really, when you see him for who he is, you'll want to be with him. And so if you've gotten to that point in your walk, then we invite you to take that next step to identify with him in a public way, to uh, put him on in baptism, to uh, have your sins washed away by his blood and his grace and, and uh, accept the gift of his spirit. We, we would love to participate in that with you to help you as you become a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've done that, but your heart just hasn't been what it ought to have been. That, that's all of us at times, isn't it? But maybe you need to ask for public prayers because there's, you just want to ask for uh, folks in this church family to, to be aware and to pray for you. We'll, we'll do that for you as well. Let's stand and sing this song. Decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. church. We are glad you are here this morning for an hour of worship with us. We hope that the lessons that Chuck presented this morning we can take to heart and to figure out how that we are living our Christian faith and making sure that we're following what Jesus has for us. Hopefully you were greeted when you came in and were given an announcement sheet, lots of things in that announcement sheet that, about activities and things. This past week has been a very busy week for most of you. Uh, I'd like to say thank you for all the participation and all the activities and things and outreach that has been going out from this location. We pray that we can continue to, to reach out to the community here and to 
to those that we have an opportunity to touch and to share Jesus with them. Today, uh, there will be no Devo at HIPAA this afternoon. Uh, also, the new quarter will be starting next Sunday, so uh, be aware of that. If you've not been one to participate in uh, the Bible classes here, uh, please be aware that we'll be starting a new quarter and uh, look forward to that. Also, uh, Last to Leaders activities will be kicking off soon. There are registration information on the back.